This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. Today, we're diving into two big stories. First, CJR's Meg Dalton talks to science reporter Cassandra Williard about the challenges of reporting on climate change. Then I get to talk to the Tau Center's Emily Bell and CJR's Tau editor Noska Renner about the media's love-hate relationship with Facebook. It's a conversation I'm really excited for, but first, here's Meg on climate change. Uh, I'm Cassandra Williard. I'm a science writer. My husband once called climate change the anti-story because it's happening over these long time frames, um, and the impacts are often really subtle. Um, And I think it's just, it doesn't fit into a traditional news cycle where you have this event and then the news covers it. Because with climate change, um, what is the event? I mean, people try to do the thing where they talk about climate change um, after a hurricane or something, and that makes sense, but, but a lot of the climate change that's happening isn't, isn't that, isn't big storms or isn't, it's just so hard to get a handle on. So you're based in Wisconsin where rising seas and hurricanes aren't the norm. Um, so the effects, you know, of climate change aren't as obvious or as destructive as in other parts of the country. So I'm, I'm wondering, how is climate change felt in Wisconsin? Yeah, I mean, I think it looks like um, shorter winters. I think it looks like it's just it's basically it's subtle. It's not the sorts of things that seem catastrophic. We're not dealing with sea level rise. We're not dealing with um, increased frequency of like hurricanes. It's just uh, little changes, you know, a shorter winter, basically. I mean, right now, I, I don't want to do the thing that people try to do and connect specific events to climate change, but you know, it's going to be 75 this weekend, and it's October. And, you know, who's to say whether that's climate change or not, but it's those things build up, and it becomes a pattern, and then you can say, yeah, it is climate change. But I think basically the message is that the effects here are happening, but they're subtle. And so for journalists, what does that mean for coverage of climate change? I, mean, I think it's a little tougher to connect the dots because there isn't the sort of news peg that you get with a hurricane or with um, some other type of catastrophic event. So I think it's just harder for, for them to connect climate change to what's going on locally. For CGR, you wrote about how journalists need to strike a balance between, you know, conveying the perils of climate change without panicking the audience, uh, yourself included. Um, I was wondering if you can elaborate a bit more on that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm someone who cares deeply about climate change. um, And I find myself avoiding climate change stories because I feel like so often they're just completely terrifying. And so I talked a little bit about um, a recent one that was written by David Wallace Wells called The Uninhabitable Earth. And it's just this really long, I mean, panic-inducing sort of um, list of all of the the possible things 
that could happen and how they're going to be like, how the impacts of climate change are going to be so much worse than we ever imagined they would be. And it's a feature. It's like 6,600 words or something. And I, I got to about the middle of it and I just couldn't even, I felt like for my sanity, I couldn't even continue. I was so panicked is the word, I guess. And so I think that, that an article like that, I understand why he wrote what he wrote, but I just don't know. I just don't know that that's an effective way to get people engaged Um, because I think you scare them and then they just can't, they can't, they can't enter into a dialogue about it. So if, Um, if that's not the right approach, then how do you think we should be talking about climate change? I don't know. I I don't think anyone knows. I think, the people who do write about climate change are really trying. And I think in many ways they're succeeding. But for me, that story was not a success. It made me want to build a bunker and stock it with canned food and water and just like go down there and live. And that's not the response we need. I mean, we need people to to act to curb emissions. And that's not what it made me want to do. It just made me want to to cry. And I, I feel like ever since, you know, President Trump was elected to, it's not becoming any easier to, to tackle climate change. It'll get cooler. It'll get warmer. It's called weather. Environmental protection. What they do is a disgrace. Every week they come out with new regulations. We'll be fine with the environment. We can leave a little bit, but you can't destroy businesses. We're going to cancel the Paris Climate Agreement and stop all payments of the United States tax dollars to UN global warming programs. Um, So I'm curious, how do you think the new political reality is changing journalists' approach to covering climate change? or, Or is it not? So I might not be the best person to ask that question, but I think in some ways, I wonder if it isn't making it a little bit easier to cover climate change, because you can now have these stories about um, the administration sort of rejecting the idea. I wonder if it doesn't give us more of an opportunity to talk about it. All right, switching gears now from climate change to a topic I've been wanting to dig into for a while. Uh, I am joined by two people who are brilliant on the topic of digital media and specifically Facebook, which is an organization that's been in the news a ton. So Emily Bell, director of Tau Center for Digital Media Columbia, thank you for being here. You're welcome. And Noska Renner, CJR's Tau editor. It's great to have you back. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with a big question. Uh, last week, Axios's Mike Allen interviewed Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg in D.C., and he asked her a pretty fundamental question. Is Facebook a media company? We're a new kind of platform. We are a technology company in our heart. We hire engineers. But that does not mean we don't have responsibility for what people put on our site. And We don't write any news articles, so certainly we're different than a media company, but that doesn't mean we don't have responsibility. Emily? Yes. What do you think of that? Well, so she's got her talking points from um, her boss, Mark Zuckerberg, who said exactly the same thing about, I think, six months ago, which is we're a new kind of platform. And this is after a 
sustained period of resistance to the idea that they could be anything other than an actual technology company. So it's kind of, it's like one of those trying to interpret very subtle shifts in body language. Um, But essentially what she's saying there is um, they have editorial responsibility. That, I'm afraid, Cheryl is a media company. Um, They, you know, they, they monitor, they host, monetize, distribute and commission content or journalism or scripted shows or whatever you want to call it. They do all of that. Um, and then they decide who's going to see what. So, you know, we know that this, we know, we know why they think that they're a technology company because they employ technologists and they didn't honestly necessarily, you know, intend for themselves to become a media company. It's just happened. Right. And so she mentions that they have responsibilities. What in your mind are those responsibilities? What do they need to be doing better? Well, I think that's a great question, actually, because they do say we do have responsibilities and nobody's actually really pinned them down on that and said, would you like to just list what you think they are? Let's think about what the responsibilities of a media company are. So I think when they say we have responsibilities, they mean we should keep our platform clean of shady propaganda, which uh, (laughs) overseas actors pay for to have distributed to US voters ahead of an election. Well, they failed in that responsibility. There is a much sort of broader, I think, sort of question here, though, which is most media companies carry with them some kind of sort of audience-centric mission, you know, which is, are we showing you things which are either kind of entertaining or informative or high quality? And that's a responsibility that Facebook just haven't owned at all. They talk about, we really believe in local journalism and we want to help make it stronger. We really believe in high quality news and we want to help it make make it stronger. But they just haven't taken responsibility for making sure that that type of material thrives on their platform. Every Facebook sort of public appearance begins with like, this is a place for like users to share photos with their family. You know, I, th- I think that at the end of the day, they just want to give people what they want. And it's going to be, I mean, publishers, they, too, are struggling with this yeah. thing of like clickbait versus... They don't actually really want to give people what they want. What they want to do is they want to give shareholders growth. And they can't do that unless they have an enormous amount of undifferentiated material. Um, I refuse to use the C word. I'm so over content. I think that the whole sort of decline of Western civilization started when we just accepted that one piece of stuff was exactly like another piece of stuff, like something that could be made. Oh, well, we don't really want to call that journalism. Who's a journalist anyway? We don't really want to call that, you know, kind of um, propaganda or advertising. Uh, it's not really what users want. You know, actually, the interesting thing about Facebook is that they've always been incredibly tightly controlled about what the user can and can't do. So, you know, their page design, their kind of their permissions settings are extremely restrictive. Uh, and unlike a platform like Twitter, where basically kind of everything is under your control as the user, uh, Facebook has had a very sort of like a very, very clear idea that, you know, it is its rules. And I think that that's one of the areas where they are in most trouble because it's not like they have this sort of slightly kind of loose idea of what free speech constitutes like um, Twitter, which is like, hey, we want everybody to have a voice. And so exactly as you were saying, Nausicaa, this idea that Facebook started from, hey, we want to connect everybody to make the world a better place. Well, with Facebook's rules that you talk about, 
and this let's accept for the, this purposes of this conversation that they are a media company. If you were in the position to sit down with Sheryl Sandberg or Mark Zuckerberg, what questions would you ask him and what would you tell him that his job is now as a publisher? Well, I think that the first job, I mean, the first question as a journalist, I think, is what are your responsibilities? You know, how how do you see them? Let's get away from this. Oh, we don't employ any journalists. But to what are your responsibilities to society more broadly? And how do you balance those against your shareholders in particular? And then I think, you know, you would say, so here's the thing about being a media company, which is a piece of advice rather than a sort of a, a an interrogation. Every major media company which has undergone a huge kind of crisis of public confidence, normally it's stemmed from a small editorial issue, you know, that actually... Yes, media companies can go bankrupt, they can fail in the market. I come from the UK where the BBC is the Facebook, you know, it was the Facebook of Britain for about 50 years. It was like this overarching. Every single existential crisis for the BBC stemmed from a small editorial miscalculation because people actually really care about what they're being told and how they're being told it and the politics of information are incredibly important. And I think that, you know, one of the things that Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg have to understand is that this sort of denial of responsibility for the type of content that people see is the thing that will derail their company over and over again. I also wanted to ask you, you know, they they hired a public editor, Liz Spade, Formerly well, of CJR and I think the New York Times. I think, what do you okay, think she's going to do? So fact check. I don't think she's actually been hired as public oh, really? editor. She's been hired to help them think through some of the editorial ethical issues. So it's not a public editor role. It's very, it's very clearly not a public editor role. Um, clearly, I just read the headline. But the, <laughs> well, transparency is one of her issues, also, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's like, how do we, how do, how do we become better? at transparency and how do we become better at ethics and you know this is a process right so so one of the interesting things about facebook and in this in this sense it really is an engineering company is that you start as nausicaa said with pictures of families and friends and then you iterate and actually kind of you know that's a process of what makes you money what do users like doing and how can you close that sort of feedback loop more and more tightly so users are making money for you quicker and quicker and in that, your kind of product can grow in all sorts of directions, right? So I don't, I really genuinely don't think they started out thinking connecting people to make the world a better place, which is a facile and sort of stupid mission statement in a way. I don't think they ever thought that it would end up where it did because they couldn't stop the sort of internal logic of the Facebook design and it was so successful and it threw off so much money and it was so great to advertise on. There was, you know, to, to actually make an intervention and say, we've noticed something that which is our fundamental design does not privilege high quality information. In fact, it's probably creating a huge market for terrible information was something they just couldn't do. So as they've expanded all over the world, obviously, 2 billion users. Uh, some of those users come from countries that wish to do us harm. What are the questions that we should be asking right now about Russian involvement? And how do we wrap our arms around this giant problem that seems to be occupying Washington and people talking about tech media? 
Well, I think that, you know, thanks to journalism, um, and it has to be said, some of the work at the Tower Centre, we now know we now know much more about actually how those um, interactions with Facebook played into the American political process. We still don't know in truth what effect it had on the election. That's like almost impossible to prove. But one of the kind of interesting things there is that the the focus has been on paid for advertising because that's where you can actually identify an, a transaction. Um, but the real... What was bought in rubles? What was, was bought in rubles? I mean, come on. <laughs> come on, everybody. But it's really not the paid for advertising here which is the issue. It is the much greater kind of organic reach of some of those pages and then the kinds of things that the operatives from this amazing sort of thing called the IRA which is not which is no longer a terroristic organization based in Northern Ireland it is now this is the troll farm in Russia this is a troll farm in Russia exactly and or very clever propaganda machine depending on how you like to sort of frame it so you know you have operatives there who are not paying a penny to Facebook, but who are now communicating with activists and interest and affiliation groups in America and saying, oh, would you like to host an event? Or, hey, we could help you organise a march. And they're getting into people's comments and making sort of associations, you know, affiliating themselves with things like LGBTQ and Black Lives Matter groups and creating a kind of a dialogue and then throwing in a... Be, you know, voting for Hillary Clinton is just, it's just as bad as voting for Donald Trump. You know, th- things like that, that we just, it's so hard to measure what the effect of that is. So you talk about the companies making decisions on their own and establishing their own guidelines, whether that's Google or Facebook. And then holding themselves accountable. Right. And it seems like where we've arrived with Facebook is at a point at which government is starting to ask questions mm-hmm. and get involved. What should we be watching going forward for that involvement? Well, you've got this um, uh, political advertising bill, which seems to be like the thing which is most likely to have an actual direct impact on them from the outside. It's got a couple of kind of sponsors. Tom Tom Warner is the person who's been leading it. Senator Uh, from Virginia. Yeah, that's right. Senator from Virginia. And that's the first kind of acknowledgement that really, I think, and I think that that is something where you would hope that there would be cross-party support to sign up for something which just makes political advertising more transparent. So in other words, you need to be able to see who has had which message sent to them and paid for by whom. It doesn't incidentally actually solve the key problem here, which is all of the other kind of activity which is not paid for. So, you know, that's a completely different issue about how you can define or, you know, try and sort of clear... Uh, what might be propagandist material off the platform. So we've been talking about these kind of questions for a year now, right? Oh, longer. Well, yeah. some some of us some have of only us, started paying attention. I was going to say some, some of us have been talking about them for four or five years, but yes, yes, it's now it's now in the it's now absolutely what everybody is talking about. So as you watch, has there been progress? Is Facebook getting better? I think that's a great question. Um, I think it is much more self-aware. Uh, but it's been sort of forced into that position really by, again, kind of, you know, just reporting on its architecture and what it's doing. Wind the clock back a year ago, you know, you had 
John Herman in the New York Times magazine writing a really sort of um, revelatory piece about, uh, which was when you look back on it now, it's incredibly prescient about Facebook's unintentional, massive political advertising machine. Uh, And then immediately after the election, you had Craig Silverman at BuzzFeed just doing incredible reporting on these are false uh, flag operations and this is the kind of fake news that they've been spreading. Without that um, and without a Donald Trump victory, we would never be having this conversation. So in a way, I think that, you know, kind of they've been forced into that position of being better. I think they have to get a bit better. Otherwise, first of all, the sort of the information environment just becomes more and more polluted because everybody could then sort of feels like they can game it. Um, and the second thing is that, you know, advertisers lose confidence in it. But, you know, kind of this has been obvious. It's been obvious that something like this would happen for a long time. And mostly Facebook has just ignored it. And now I think it couldn't have possibly conceived of the sort of the the, the, the depth of hell that it's in. And when I, when I say that, I don't mean, you know, they are that they're still sort of the money is still kind of pouring in through every portal. But every single person in senior management at Facebook is now completely embroiled in this. These kind of it's it's still a relatively unmature company and they're having to hire kind of like thousands of people to solve these problems which is a real sign of how unprepared they were and yet they could have really sort of thought this through well as facebook deals with this issue and as it hopefully continues to make progress i'm sure we would love to have you back for an update uh, but thank you for being here now to talk about it thank you very much and nasca it's been great to have you back thanks thanks for being back thanks pete That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank Cassandra Williard for speaking with Meg earlier and give a special thanks to Emily Bell and Noska Renner for joining me here in the studio. You can check out all the great content we've got at cjra.org, touching on these topics and many others, and we appreciate all of your support. We'll see you next week.